One of the roles that Torah plays right now is in giving people a mirror to what they're feeling, what they're experiencing, and maybe even a window <laughs> yeah. to where they want to go. I'm Alana Steinheim, Rosh Beit Midrash and Senior Fellow at the Shalom Hartman Institute. I'm excited to share that I am the host of Texting, a new podcast where ancient wisdom meets contemporary relevance from Hartman's award-winning digital team. On each show, Hartman scholars Christine Hayes, Yona Hain, or Leora Botnitsky will join me to delve into a Torah text that offers insight and inspiration about the issues that matter to you and to our community. I got the feeling from the various explanations that the rabbis gave that God also feels broken. You can listen to texting at shalomhartman.org forward slash texting or wherever you get your podcasts. I look forward to learning with you. Hey there, and welcome back to Take One, the podcast that brings you just one cinematic page of Talmud every day. And in today's page, Kiddushin 32, we have this amazing scene. It begins towards the bottom of the page where Rava, the great Rava, one of the greatest rabbis of the Talmud, is there serving drinks to the guests at his son's wedding celebration. And he pours all his friends cups of wine and they start discussing why is this really famous Talmudic scholar here pouring us drinks and the whole chat then evolves to a conversation about what honor if any do we owe different people in our life until Rabbi Tzadok stands up to rebuke them all have a listen Rabbi Tzadok said to them for how long will you ignore the honor due to the omnipresent and deal with the honor of people you could cite a proof from God himself. After all, the Holy One, blessed be he, makes the winds blow and raises the clouds and brings the rain and causes the earth to sprout and sets a table before each and every creature. And should not the esteemed Rabban Gamliel stand over us and serve us drinks? He was another one of those serving drinks. This discussion indicates that even in a sea, even most exalted rabbi may forgo the honor due him. And so this conversation about the honor we uh, invest in people, the way we fear them, the way we respect them, the way we treat them, really ought to be considered in relations to the honor we pay God, which just happens to be the subject of one of the most fascinating film reviews that I've read in a very long time. It is a review of a film that came out decades ago. It is not an anniversary. There's no reason to be thinking about this, except for it is a completely underrated masterpiece that deals with precisely the themes the sages are talking about in today's page. And here to tell us about this masterpiece is Tablet Magazine's own Armin Rosen. Hello. Great to be here, Liel. So you wrote this piece in First Things, another great American publication. What is this mysterious, kind of forgotten, at least in some parts, masterpiece? So Andrei Rublev is probably, in my mind, the greatest movie ever made about religion. And the extremely strange, complicating fact about it is that it came out in the Soviet Union in 1966. An officially atheist society produced the greatest meditation on faith ever to come out. Directed, by, directed by the great Tarkovsky. Yes. Uh, give us a, this is a very unfair question, but give us a very brief synopsis to the extent that you can. It is about the life of Andrei Rublev, who is one of the great Russian icon painters, the 
12th and 13th century. And the film kind of follows him through just this one kind of trial after another in medieval Russia, which is depicted as like the worst place it's ever existed, right? There are plagues, you know, there are warlords. The only way that an artist can make it is by painting a church on behalf of one of the warlords, right? In the middle of the film, the tater hordes show up and sack Vladimir, and it's one of the most brutal things ever to appear on film. Um, and through it all, our hero, Andrei Rublev, has a series of crises of faith. He has a, a crisis of his own connection to Russia, which was just kind of a, a nascent idea back then. And somehow, in one of the great sort of passages ever recorded on film, um, he manages to recover all of it, or at least sort of recover his own sort of version of it that allows him to sort of live in this world and also in kind of a higher world simultaneously. There's this great moment of reconciliation at the end that's so incredible that I'm not going to spoil it for any of you. Go out and see Andre Rublev as soon as you can. To, to uh, anyone who's, who's looking for a good thing to watch on Netflix on a nice Thursday evening. But part of what makes the movie so great and part of what gives Andre Rublev his strength is that he has a very similar approach to the one Rabbi Tzadok is espousing in today's page, kind of basically saying, guys, I understand there are Tatars, there are like... Everything is bad. There are a lot of circumstances on which your survival depends, and you do have to pay a lot of attention to people, power, hierarchies, these yeah. things. But put your faith in the Almighty, and you transcend it all. Worry more about the one who actually created all of this, and much less about the people who sort of act on, on this field, right? And he's pulled between you know, his obligation to human beings and to himself and the obligation to survive you know, within this nightmare of a society and his higher obligation to God, to his sort of understanding of what he is supposed to be doing as a religious artist. And of course, this is exactly the same dilemma that so many artists faced in the Soviet Union, including Tarkovsky himself. And the fact that he was able to transcribe this sort of push and pull politics and the flesh on one hand and, you know, the transcendent and the actual sort of sources of meaning and motive in people's lives on the other, the fact that he was able to portray this in the time and place that he did is really kind of nothing short of miraculous in, in many respects. It's incredible this movie even got made at all. More, more about this in a second, but yeah. you're, I think you're touching on a very interesting point, which is neither Rubilev nor Tarkovsky, neither the character nor the artist, are naive in any real way. They're not ecstatic sorts who just say, oh, I will put my complete faith in God and nothing bad will happen to me because I walk on clouds. They're very keenly aware of the sort of realpolitik of their time, and yet they choose to sort of espouse to a higher ethos, right? Well, really, Andrei Rublev is a stripping away of naivete. I mean, you see the entire scope of this man's life, and he sort of begins as an idealist, as almost kind of a rebel to a certain extent with certain very dangerous ideas. Uh, you know, he's portrayed as like a bit of a religious nationalist in the first half of the film in a way that kind of freaks out his mentors. But then over the course of the movie, as he becomes increasingly disillusioned, his disillusionment with the earthly kind of connects him to sort of his own kind of spiritual sense of motive as an artist and as a, as a person. How did a movie like that get past the Soviet censors? There are a couple explanations for this. One is that the censors didn't really know what they were seeing. Although in Andrei Rublev's case, they did know what they were seeing. It was made in 1966. It wasn't released until many years later. I think that there are certain kind of subtleties in the film that went over their heads. 
but the larger fact that this was an incredible, extravagant apologia for faith in the face of political oppression did not escape the Soviet censors of the time. Tarkovsky himself, though, is in somewhat of a privileged position within the Soviet system. His father was a war hero and a broadly admired poet. Tarkovsky himself had directed a film right before Rublev called Ivan's Childhood, you know, still considered one of the great patriotic Soviet depictions of World War II, a very dark one, but, you know, nevertheless, it's a movie about kind of the goodness and courage of of the Russian people in a way. He had bought himself a certain runway to do whatever he wanted, you know, within certain limits, and and he used it. That's the incredible thing. I think other artists would not have. Other artists would have sort of been satisfied with the privileges that they had. Tarkovsky risked the privileges that he had at every turn and eventually had to go into exile in the 80s. And he made his last two films, his worst two films, when he was living in Western Europe. Yeah, I think there's also really an interesting lesson in there, too. The moment he escaped censorship was the moment that the tension that held his work together sort of crumbled. Armin Rosen, thank you so much for this uh, film history lesson. And I think everyone should go, of course, and watch Andrei Rublev. Thank you so much for being our guest. Thanks for having me. This has been Take One. If you enjoy the show, and I hope that you do, please go and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts and get your Take One t-shirts and mugs at tabletstudios.com. Each week, we will be releasing new episodes Monday through Friday, covering the entire weekly portion of Daf Yomi. Take One is a Tablet Studios production. The show is hosted by me, Leah Leibowitz, and is produced and edited by Daron Rusquet, Quinn Waller, and Ellie Blyer. Our team also includes Stephanie Butnick, Josh Cross, Robert Scaramucci, Courtney Hazlett, and Tanya Singer. For more information, go to tabletmag.com slash take one. Subscribe to our newsletter at tabletm.ag slash take one newsletter or email us at take one at tabletmag.com. You can find us on Twitter at take one dafyomi or join our Facebook group by searching for Take One Podcast. I hope we have made your day a little more Talmudic. <laughs>